It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hey everyone, this is Motherboard Editor-in-Chief Jason Kebler. I'm filling in for Ben this week. He's on vacation, went to a foreign country yet again. Good for Ben. We talk a lot at Motherboard about supply chain. Supply chain attacks, human labor and resource use, shipments all around the world, and its environmental effects. But we talk less often about the second supply chain that happens when we get rid of our electronics. Today, we're going inside that end-of-life supply chain to discuss how our electronics are recycled, repaired, reused, and resold all around the world. Hey, so this is Jason Kebler. I'm filling in for Ben Maku. I am talking here to Adam Minter, who is the author of Secondhand, an awesome new book out on Bloomsbury Publishing. And he's also the author of Junkyard, Junkyard Planet. I was going to say Junkyard America, but I knew that it was a worldwide (laughs) book and I just completely blanked. Um, Adam, I'm a huge fan of yours. You've worked with us before. Uh, You obviously have been writing about topics we care quite a lot about. Can you just give us like a quick intro as to who you are and what is secondhand? Sure. Well, um, I am an author. I'm also a columnist with Bloomberg where I write about a lot of things, including trash and recycling and waste. And um, the way I got to this topic is I grew up in it. My family uh, has been in the junk business, the scrap metal business, since the early 20th century. So it's sort of in the genes. And when I started my journalism career, um, I just naturally gravitated to what I'd grown up in. Some of my earliest memories are being a toddler in a junkyard, which you don't want to let your toddler loose in a junkyard unless, you know, maybe it's your junkyard. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of my background. And so always interested in used stuff and uh, going to garage sales and thrift stores and, and seeing, you know, what the treasures and the value is and the stuff that other people don't want. Right. So the first book is, as the name suggests, about scrap and trash and junkyards. Mm-hmm. And then secondhand is also about old stuff. But as the name suggests, it's like what happens to things that still have value yeah. and can be reused. So what made you want to write this book? So there were a couple of sort of branches that, you know, sort of came into this big tree of this book. One was a trip I made to Ghana in 2015 where I went to Agbag Bloshi, which is sort of the notorious e-waste dump, or at least people think it's an e-waste dump there. And as I walked around there, I saw that it wasn't what people thought it was. It was actually a big ecosystem where computers were coming in, they were taking them apart, and the parts were going to other places in Ghana to be reused in different electronics. And uh, and it wasn't about burning them and turning them into, you know, bars of gold and silver and copper. So that was one branch that sort of led to this. The other thing was, um, it was a little bit more personal, is, um, you know, I had a couple of uh, people pass away in my family. And one thing that we all end up doing at some point is trying trying to figure out what to do with the property of our relatives after they move on. And it's, you know, I was talking to somebody about this just the other night. I mean, there's sort of in 21st century America, two kinds of grieving. You grieve for the person who is gone and you sort of grieve for the fact that you need to find somewhere to put away all that stuff. And so when I went through And so much of that stuff is very personal. It's very, it's like tied to the person. Yeah. I mean, our identities, let's face it, are are in many ways wrapped up with our stuff. You know, nobody knows that better than like Google and Facebook, you know, who, who are all about figuring out what we like and then marking it to us. And they put together this profile of us based on the stuff we want. And so when it comes time to get rid of that stuff, it's a little bit like disassembling the stuff. 
So, you know, we tend to think of stuff in environmental terms in a lot of cases, but it's also about our identity and, and it's very hard to let go, which is, I think, one of the reasons why we all live in apartments and houses with too much stuff. So I wanted to figure out where that stuff goes. Yeah, there was a really interesting stat in the preface to the book, which is like 90% of all American garages is are dedicated to stuff and not cars. Yeah, in Los Angeles, uh, there was a study done there a few years back, and, and they just went around and seen what was what was available, you know, in terms of space for cars in people's garages. And, and you kind of know this if you drive around Los Angeles, everybody's cars in their driveway, and if they open the garage, it's just filled with boxes, you know, and you don't even know what that stuff is. I mean, some of it's kids' stuff, some of it might be, you know, wedding gifts. Some of it, I think a lot of it, is, you know, mom and dad stuff and grandma's stuff. And stuff just gets passed down to the family and moves into the garage. Yeah, when I grew up, my car, my parents' cars never went in the garage. It was just stuff and stuff and stuff. And then I have a much younger sister, and they turned uh, the garage into a playroom. And now that she's grown, it's reverted into a place for all of her old stuff, just boxes and boxes everywhere. And it's I think about it a lot of the time, like, where is that stuff going to go my childhood stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of it is in the attic or it's in my childhood home, like my baseball cards, my Game Boy, like all of this stuff. And I guess when I was a kid, I thought, hey, this stuff is going to be very valuable one day. And very little of it is valuable in the monetary sense, mm-hmm. but all of it has sentimental value to me. So uh, is that something you explore in this book? It is. I mean, uh, the opening chapters of this book, actually, I spent time with companies. Their job is to clean out homes of people who are downsizing or after somebody has passed away. And I did it in the United States and Minnesota specifically. And I also went to Japan because they have a very large and thriving industry that does this as well. And it was very jarring because one of the things you find out very quickly as you spend time going from house to house and cleaning it out is most of the stuff in the house doesn't matter to anybody but the person who bought it or maybe the next generation. But increasingly, one of the things you hear if you talk to these cleanout companies is they'll say, well, you know, they, we're doing a job for somebody downsizing. And that person will say, no, don't throw that away. My kids will want it. But what more often than not, the answer from the kids is, no, we really don't. We just get rid of it. Yeah, <laughs> we, we don't want four more sets of china. You yeah. know, so that's the scary thing. We have all this stuff and, and there's really no value to it. Yeah, so we're going to get into this more later, but I think that there's a, a very interesting cultural moment happening here. Uh, and I'd love to talk more about the quality of the goods that we're making as well as electronics specifically. However, it feels like there's an inflection point right now with Mary Kondo, which you do mention mm-hmm. in the book. I'm curious, is our relationship with stuff changing, not just because of that show and that book, but also people seem to really care a lot about, or people have like really grabbed onto this idea of like, let me just get rid of all of my stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Marie Kondo is, um, at least in the United States, she's taken on kind of a sustainability sheen, you know, but but that's definitely not the case in Japan. Um, and she comes out of a great tradition, which was really just about cleaning out the stuff for your own sake. So you have a little bit more mental space and maybe you can go shopping some more. Um, it seems to have taken on the sustainability sheen in the United States. But but one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, and I guess this, this would be one of the minor reasons, is I, I had seen these cleanouts happening. And I was wondering where this stuff is going. Again, because it's really, it you know, just because you put it out on the side 
sidewalk or take it to the Goodwill doesn't mean that there's something sustainable going on with it. So from my perspective, the Marie Kondo phenomenon really is about uh, consumption uh, more than uh, more than it is about sustainability. I think we're making more room for stuff. And, and even though there is this sort of Zen thing about it, I think in the United States, we think of it as a Zen Japanese thing. I mean, the reason it's popular in Japan is their houses are as big a mess as ours are. You know, and they want to clean them up as well. And, and I think we need to disabuse this, ourselves of this notion that it's all tatami mats and very clean corners. It's not. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Japanese cleanouts, and they have as big a problem, um, if not bigger, than we do. So, so the condo thing is kind of interesting because I think it's, it just gives people an excuse to consume more. Right. So there's surely not an, in, uh, an easy answer to this question. You wrote a whole book about it. But where does our old stuff go if it still has use or value? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's going to be sorted. There's going to be somebody who does that sorting, whether it's in your house or if it's at Goodwill. And just and I spent quite a bit of time with Goodwill in Arizona. And one thing you find out at Goodwill is that only about one third of the stuff that goes on the shelves at a Goodwill sells at a Goodwill. The rest of it is then uh, sorted, mostly textiles, uh, so your clothing, your linens, and that kind of thing, for export to other countries. And so there's a pretty good bet that some of that stuff is going to be reused, but it's going to be reused overseas or in Mexico, um, somewhere, somewhere other than the United States. And then the rest of it, an increasing percentage of it, is going to be find its way into a landfill or an incinerator. So there's really no pretty answer to it. Um, most of it is not going to end up where you want it to end up because there just isn't simply enough demand for all that stuff. Yeah, I think that there's this idea, at least when I was a kid and my dad was like, oh, let's like get rid of your old clothes and give it to Goodwill. I was like, oh, I'm like giving this to a poor kid somewhere who's going right. to love and treasure it. And that's often not the case. Right. And, and Goodwill, um, you know, I think, I think there's this misconception that Goodwill is in the business of giving clothes to poor people, but that's not what it's about. It does something um, a little bit more profound. It it retails those and it figures out very good ways to make as much money as possible from those used clothes to fund its what it calls its mission, which is to provide job training uh, to people who need it, especially the hardest cases. So kids coming out of juvenile detention, uh, that's one of Goodwill's great um, passions is funding job training and GEDs and you know all kinds of things like that. So that's what it's for. It's, it's looked at as a commodity. Right, right. So let's talk about, uh, I think, more tech and electronic stuff because mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess that's what we're here for, although this right. is very fascinating too. Yeah. Uh, I've been obsessed with uh, e-waste and what happens to our old things and the fact that it feels like a lot of our electronics are becoming more and more disposable. But We've also found that there's this sort of uh, secondary economy of people who are repairing things even when they're supposed to be not repairable. And uh, a lot of this stuff does get reused. So I guess, let's say I have a cell phone and I go and throw it in one of those donation boxes somewhere. Is, mm-hmm. is that a good place to start this conversation? I don't sure. Know, hopefully. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Like, what, what happens to that? So that phone, if it goes into donation box... Um, you know, it depends who, who owns that donation box, but they may very well, uh, the first thing they'll do is they'll look at that phone, see if it's working. Um, if it's from the last three to five years and the screen isn't scratched up, they may try and sell it directly on eBay right away um, because there'll be a market for it in North America, a three-year-old phone. People are going to buy it, even uh, as old as a five-year-old phone. 
If it's older than five years old, um, that phone is more likely than not going to be aggregated with other five-year-old plus phones and sent to China and Hong Kong where there are vast marketplaces where you get these vast inventories of used phones that are then classified. Um, they're looked at for whether they're working, whether they're scratched up, the physical condition. If there are very basic repairs or just polishing that needs to be done, they'll do it. And then those phones will move on to emerging markets. Less so these days, China, because China has moved up the income ladder so they can buy they buy a lot of new stuff. So that may be Southeast Asia, that may be India, and the biggest market of all for used stuff and not just electronics. I mean, it's everything at this point is Africa. And so it'll be those phones will be sent to Africa. Um, now, if the phone is broken, you know, and, and it depends how you want to define broken, a broken screen, or maybe there's some, you know, motherboard within it is fried. Um, you know, the skill level exists in these places to fix those things. I mean, we can fix screens here very simply, but board level repairs where somebody opens it up and actually, you know, has a soldering iron and fixes, you know, the board. If it's a phone that's worth fixing, say uh, an iPhone from the last five years, they will do that. And then those phones will make their way into market markets and be remarketed around Africa. When those phones finally fail or when it's too old to really sell it, uh, you know, at a level that makes it worth it, um, they'll be disassembled and they'll be parted out. And there's a thriving market for for parts for older phones um, that allow those phones to keep working, other people's phones. So it's, it's a very complex supply chain, as complex as lucrative um, and as competitive as the marketplace for new phones. Right. So I have heard many times from in my own reporting when I'm talking to right to repair folks and and just like sustainability people that the absolute worst thing you can do with an old phone or laptop or what have you is stick it in a desk drawer or your closet mm-hmm. and let it sit there. Is that the case? Like, do you agree with that? Definitely agree with that. I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, but but the key reason, uh, well, there's two key reasons and they're related. Um, but one is the best thing you can do for, uh, you know, the environment, if you're going to use devices, is make sure those devices last as long as possible. So if you're in North America and you've got, say, a four or five-year-old phone that, uh, doesn't interest you anymore, that you're going to upgrade to something else. Um, That four or five-year-old phone is in high demand in somewhere like Kenya or Ghana or Benin. Um, And so if that phone goes over there, that means it's just less pressure for somebody to buy a newer phone, maybe one of these very low-quality off-brand Chinese phones that's flowing into West Africa. So that's number one. But the second matter is um, maybe the phone isn't working anymore. You've got a crack screen. You don't like looking at that crack screen. Somebody may not use that phone. But within that phone, there are parts that can be used, that can be harvested and will be harvested to help repair phones elsewhere. And that means that those phones last longer. So by by putting that in the desk you're sort of denying people the opportunity to use it longer and or to take those parts and help other devices last longer. Yeah. And I think you brought up a really important point, which is in the United States, there are a few folks who do board level repairs, uh, which often requires like a microscope and mm-hmm. tweezers, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, it's pretty... Uh, highly skilled work as mm-hmm. well as very labor intensive or, or it takes a long time often. Um, and in the United States, from my reporting, it seems like it's generally done for purposes of like data recovery on like right. water damaged phones. So like getting the photos off of uh, of a, an old phone or something like that. Whereas it's it's like a pretty common repair in places like Africa and, mm-hmm. and China. Why is that the case? 
Well, it's just it's a it's all about income, you know, and it's all about uh, the fact that it's there's there's a price point where repair makes sense, you know, and and uh, in the United States, you know, spending um, a huge chunk of money to repair a board in the United States, the labor to do something like that's going to be several hundred dollars, and so if you've got several hundred dollars to spend, you may say to yourself, well, I might as well just buy another phone or even another secondhand phone. People will say it's not worth it, but when you go to an emerging market, um, it is worth it because there's just less income and there's an incentive there to keep your device working. And, and I think it's really important to note, this isn't just about phones. Um, right. You know, there's, there's other types of electronics and, and that are even more important. In the book, um, I describe a, a marvelous television repairman in a small town in uh, Ghana called Savalugu uh, by the name of Ibrahim Al-Hassan. And when I met him, he was working on 40-year-old tube televisions. And uh, extremely sophisticated repairs. He was taking tube televisions that couldn't use remote controls and adding remote control to them. And we asked him when we went and visited him, can you fix DVDs? And he says, well, we get together, you know, some of the other repairmen and we teach each other how to do this stuff. And I thought that was really interesting because I think in the United States in particular, uh, we're prone to sort of make repair this mystical sort of black box. And we sort of buy into the marketing that, oh, you don't open the iPhone. You can't figure it out yourself. It needs to be done by somebody in a genius bar. But, you know, if you go to Savalugu and you meet Ibrahim al-Hassan and he's getting together with his buddies, you know, say, you know, every Wednesday night and hanging out and teaching each other how to fix a DVD player, which I guarantee you is as difficult as fixing as an iPhone, that is a really wonderful demystification. It's a great lesson to all of us. Yeah, I want to tell just like a very quick story because I reported on what happens to CRT televisions Mm -hmm. a few years ago. Uh, Here in the United States, recycling CRT televisions is not terribly lucrative. And there, from what I understand, or from my reporting, and please correct me if I go wrong here, uh, there are a lot of companies that will sort of harvest CRT TVs because they can get either a subsidy or, or otherwise just like obtain them. And then rather than recycle them, they are often shipping them off to places like Africa or Hong Kong or what have you. And there was a, a big company called Closed Loop here in the United States that harvested like literally hundreds of thousands of old televisions and then went out of business and left just like piles and piles of CRT televisions in warehouses in Ohio and Arizona. And these are toxic or, or they mm-hmm. could be toxic. The glass. Uh, the glass can be toxic, the the tube within, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a few years since I reported this story. And I, I'm curious, like I haven't checked back in on that. I'm not sure what happened to those TVs, but it, these places became super fun sites. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what happens to, to CRT televisions once they leave the United States? Because in that case, like, it was not profitable to recycle them or to get mm-hmm. rid of them. And I believe it's perhaps illegal to just, like, dump them on other right. countries. And so uh, what, what happens to yeah, them? It, it wasn't illegal to, to send them to other countries, but you needed to notify, I believe it's the U.S. EPA. You still need to notify the U.S. EPA if you export them. Um, what's interesting now is that um, what drove that trade overseas wasn't the need to dump them. It's always cheaper to dump something, you know, in the United States and put it in a shipping container and send it to Africa. Um, what drove that was demand for repair and reuse. They would take those TVs and they would repair them. And you still see them being repaired. Um, and one of the interesting things is a CRT lasts a lot longer than your standard flat screen television. 
Um, and so you see them like with Ibrahim al-Hassan, he's, he's repairing 40-year-old CRTs. But meanwhile, the people who can afford them have started transitioning in these emerging markets to flat screen televisions. So there really is almost zero demand for the CRTs in emerging markets anymore. And that's actually created a lot more pressure in North America because you need to find, you need to find somewhere for that stuff to go. So um, what you now see in terms of screens of any kind flowing into emerging markets are flat screens. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about more recent technology. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned, we've moved to, to flat screens. We obviously uh, have moved from like flip phones that have replaceable batteries to uh, iPhones and each iteration of the iPhone, the board gets smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, this is happening to laptops, to, to everything has a chip in it now, uh, smartwatches, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of these things are less repairable than they were in the past. Do you see this as a, a major problem? I do. Um, you know, I, I, I remain cautiously optimistic. I mean, I've, I've been amazed traveling around Africa in particular, you know, at just how skilled and how resourceful the repair community is there in figuring out ways to fix some of this stuff. Um, one, one particular device that I'm very concerned about from a sustainability uh, perspective is an electric car. You know, because uh, these are these are basically giant computers on on wheels, and you know the ability to fix the electronics is going to be crucial to making sure that these cars operate. And I don't write about this in the book, but I did start asking car repairmen in in Africa, what are they going to do as they start seeing these electric electric vehicles? They said, no problem. We already have people we know who are figuring out how to hack these things and and give us the ability to to replace the circuit boards or at least repair them on site. So I think that's really encouraging. And so far, at least, uh, you know what I've seen in Africa and in Ghana in particular, is that there hasn't been a point where people are saying, oh, we can't fix this yet. Mm -hmm. You know, the skill is still there to do it, um, but they are concerned about being able to access the parts. So the skill is there, but but the question is, can I get the parts? Are they concerned about lithium-ion batteries and the fact that those have a limited lifespan in terms of being able to hold a full charge after you know, a few hundred or thousand charge cycles? It's really didn't come up. They're able to get those, and, and um, Nigeria in particular is manufacturing them and remanufacturing them. There's quite a bit of recovery. So I never heard any concern about the lithium-ion batteries there. So we were just talking a lot about uh, computers and laptops, but one thing I think a lot about is the fact that we are moving toward Internet of Things devices in everything that we have. So, um Whereas in the past, you might have a refrigerator that lasts for 20 or 30 mm-hmm. years or a washing machine that lasts for 20 or 30 years and can be repaired for as long as you want, as long as you're mm-hmm. willing to put some love into it. Uh, we are now moving to an era in which there's like digital rights management on a lot of this stuff. There's you know software updates that like may or may not come to these devices. Right. And then we've already seen, I think like recent Samsung fridges that that came out, I don't know, like five, six years ago are like no longer supported by Samsung. Mm-hmm. And they will still keep your food cold as far as I know. But are you worried that the lifespan of these devices will get shorter and shorter as we computerize them more and more? Yeah, I mean, I, I think product durability is a huge issue right now, um, you know, but I, 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 take, uh, I take away two uh, things that make me optimistic that it may not be fatal. One, a refrigerator is a refrigerator in some certain sense. It's going to have a compressor that keeps things cool. And so insofar as somebody can, you know, get that compressor and they've got that refrigerator cabinet, they're going to be able to bypass those electronics and just make that compressor work. And you've got your, you know, your, your, your uh, thermostat on there. And, and that should be 
be okay. And I, I have every bit of confidence that, you know, those appliances, and in the United States, they mostly flow into Mexico. I think there's going to be usage of those at some level. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for the repair people. But if there's a compressor on that refrigerator, um, they're going to make it a refrigerator. Uh, the second thing that I take some solace from and makes me optimistic is that increasingly in consumer surveys, and we see these in Europe as well, um, people are becoming increasingly discontent with the short lifespan of appliances in particular. Um, you know, it's, I, I cite in the book um, some surveys where people are saying what they expect their refrigerator, the, the lifespan to be, and what they're getting, and they're really frustrated by it, and they've indicated a willingness to pay more. Um, I give an example in the book of a company called Speed Queen. It's a brand, um, and that's a washing machine made by um, the world's largest commercial laundry company. Um, it's more expensive. Um, it's, it's about $300 dollars more on average than say a Maytag, but it's going to last 25 years and they make it very clear and it does. I was at the factory and I saw how they made these things, they're tanks. And they have seen their growth just go crazy over the last five years as people find out there's this brand of washing machine that, you know, lasts like they used to last before Maytag and Westinghouse started making sort of these disposable laundry machines. So, and that's being driven by one thing and that's consumer demand. So ultimately, I, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I, I have some optimism, at least at the upper end of the market, that the manufacturers are going to respond. They're going to have to respond because people want this. Yeah. I could opine here a little bit about the durability of, of various things, but I haven't, to be honest. Uh, you surely know more about the data, so I'm just going to ask you. Uh, are clothes, electronics, all these different things, Are they do they last shorter Definitely. On average than they used to, and why is that? Yeah, I mean, certainly people are making stuff that lasts as long as it used to. You know, Speed Queen is making washing machines as long as they used to. But but there are more people making more things that don't last as long. And it's no secret to anybody. I mean, we all know about fast fashion and Forever 21. You know, these are they're, they're putting out doc, uh, documents, garments that last one to five washes. Why are they doing it? Because there's the demand for that price point. And that isn't just a demand in North America, say. I mean, if you go to places like Ghana, if you go to China, you have emerging market consumers who want their chance to buy new stuff. And Chinese manufacturers in particular have become incredibly adept at making a garment, say, for somebody who's in Manhattan and is willing to pay, say, $60 for it, say, a a shirt. And then they can make that same garment with a lower quality in the same factory for somebody who's willing to spend the equivalent of $6 for it. Um, And that's been an incredible evolution in manufacturing, especially over the last 25 years. But something that I point out in the book, and I think it's really important to keep in mind, is it's not a new phenomenon. Um, There were articles in the New York Times, and I quoted one in the book from the 1970s with people saying, oh, garments are just not lasting as long as they used to. And they bring in people from the textile industry saying, yeah, it dates back to World War II. And then you can go and look in the archives and people at World War II are saying, oh, no, it started going downhill in the 19th century. So this has really been a progressive since the Industrial Revolution as we make goods and demand goods that can fit our price point, that allows us to buy new stuff. In reporting out the sort of afterlife, or I guess we think of it as afterlife of our products, obviously they are new to someone else and then right. they live their own lives after that. Uh, and and fo- sort of tracking this uh, trade all over the world, did you come out more optimistic or less optimistic than you went in thinking 
Yeah, in some ways I came out confused. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's hard to, uh, you know, there's days I'd feel really encouraged, you know, where I'd go and spend time uh, at the Speed Queen facility in Ripon, Wisconsin, and see they're making these great washing machines, and there's huge demand uh, for these great washing machines. And then I'd go back home to Malaysia and walk through the mall and see all of these clothes, new clothes that won't last, you know, more than five washes and know that there's a whole uh, cohort of consumers who are coming online who want that. You know, they want that che- that access to that cheap stuff so they can be new consumers as well. And so, you know, I, I was found myself split between these. But the thing that made me more optimistic on balance than pessimistic is just the simple fact that you have in these emerging market economies in Asia in particular, you have the first shoots of sustainability movements where you actually have consumers, especially younger consumers, millennials, um, saying we actually are starting to care about where these products come from. You know, how are they made? We can care about the CSR. And and it's very new and it's not going to, you know, we're not going to become, you know, we're not going to see China become Sweden, you know, uh, you know, in the next six months. But it's starting earlier than it did in North America. We didn't start thinking about sustainability till you know, well into a century of our, our economic development. And so there are people thinking about it there. Um, they're much more impacted by their environment than we were during our economic expansion. And I think that's um, going to push uh, sustainability movement, especially in consumption, much quicker. The other thing that makes me optimistic is uh, so-called dematerialization. You know, where, you know, these phones in our pockets um, now replace, you know, what I used to have, you know, a hi-fi and I had a camera and I had, you know, all kinds of different things that are now packed into these devices. And, and what's really encouraging about that, and we actually have data on this, it shows that people are buying less stuff. They're just spending that money on this one device. So we are seeing less waste in that sense. I've been really hard on Apple over the years, and mm-hmm. Apple is not the only one, obviously. Uh, but I just feel like they have—they're the—they're the richest company in the world. They are sort of this status symbol, and people—they're—it's an aspirational product. The iPhone is aspirational. The MacBook is aspirational. Uh, you wrote an article for us a few years back about sort of the environmental case for the iPhone, and I'm curious: Do you think that Apple is doing a good job with sustainability. There, there's obviously things that they can be doing better, but I, I think that you sort of wrote an article that made me think about it in a different way, which is this dematerialization aspect, as well as the fact that on average, iPhones tend to last a little bit longer than mm-hmm. cheaper Android devices, particularly because there's demand for them all over the world. Right. So what, what do you, where do you come down on this? I still, I still, I still come down, you know, on balance on the side of Apple. I mean, if we look at the life cycle assessments, of, you know, what the environmental impact of a device is, the very best thing you can do environmentally, um, you know, with your stuff is to make it last longer. And there's no question that on balance, Apple is making some of the most durable digital products out there. Um, and they support them, you know, with software updates longer than most other companies. And so if you're concerned about the environmental impact of your device, the fact that Apple products will last longer and will remain updated longer is a net positive. And then you add in, you know, the fact that you have all these things that used to go on your shelves in your living room, whether it be a television. And people are still buying televisions, but but they're also watching television on their phone more. And that's a, actually, you know, electrically, that's a more efficient way to do it. So, yes, in that sense, I would actually make the argument that the fact that Apple has made such durable products is is a vote for their sustainability. Now, that's not to say they get a free pass because 
as they make these things more durable, they also make them more difficult to repair. So you could you can you don't even have to argue. It's very much the case. I mean, if they could just put a battery you know uh, door on the back of the iPhone, I think that would go a long way to making those things last even longer. Um, but they don't. And so, you know, I think we all would like to see those kinds of just very simple tweaks to their products uh, to to continue to make the case for durability. So uh, I want you to be my therapist for one moment. Okay. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, I bought an iPhone 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my first new phone in like three and a half years or right. so. The issue that I care most about, I, I edit a tech website, but the issue I care most about is right to repair and sustainability of electronics and and this sort of thing. And I've long sort of argued, yes, you should use your phone for as long as possible. Uh, You should repair it when it's broken, that sort of thing. Um, And it finally got to a point where I was like, I guess it's time for a new phone. And just because I I write about these things so much, I thought it it was just like a very hard thing for me to walk into the Apple Mm -hmm. store and be like, give me a new phone, please. Like here's $1,200. is it okay that I bought a new phone? Well, I think, um, let me ask you a question before I answer that. Yes. What did you do with the old one? So at the moment, I got this last week. Okay. So my old phone is on my nightstand. It's okay. not in a drawer and I do plan to get rid of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I plan to probably sell it on eBay. It's an iPhone 7. Mm-hmm. So it's the sc- here's why I got a new phone. Uh, the glass on the camera was broken mm-hmm. uh, and the actual lens on the camera was broken too so I couldn't take photos anymore mm-hmm. and I had already replaced the battery once and I had replaced the screen once mm-hmm. um, and I looked at what it would cost to replace the screen and the camera again and it was going to be something like $400 or so and I figured I could ma- I could use it maybe one more year but then I needed to get a new phone anyway mm-hmm. and I was thinking I've already repaired this. I basically rebuilt this phone entirely once already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really love to take photos. So I'm just going to do it and, and pretend that it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think with the 7, I mean, there's demand for that product. I mean, it's one of the most in-demand phones in the world, just not in the United States. And so if you're selling that phone on eBay, and you should sell it on eBay, um, I guarantee it's going overseas. And it's going to be repaired probably overseas, maybe maybe here. And it's going to have a much longer life overseas than if you'd kept it in your pocket, um, you know, for another year or two. Because ultimately, you're going to have to upgrade, especially for what you do um, for your job. It's going to have a much longer life. And so um, not only is somebody going to use that, but it may very well keep them from buying a shorter-lived product, um, you know, that's not as well-made, maybe coming from sort of one of these, you know, these off-brand Chinese manufacturers. You're actually making sure that that phone lasts longer. So I think that's you know that's the net positive. You've you've given somebody the chance to fix that, to do it at a price point much lower than you would, and they're going to take care of it, and it's going to last a long time. And not only that, you're helping to bridge sort of this digital divide. Um, and again, buying the iPhone, I don't want to sound like a an advertisement for Apple because um, I'm not, and I've been critical of them as you know in my journalism as well. But you're buying a, a product that you know in, at a price uh, that you're going to take care of it, and you're going to make it last longer. And I would say uh, that's a much better thing to do than maybe buying a less durable 
uh, uh, phone that you're not going to use quite as long. I mean, consumption is hard, you know, and everybody wants to have like a black and white, you know, map to what they should do or black and or you know, black and green. Um, but that doesn't exist. You know, we live in a consumer society and, and we're not going to be able to completely withdraw from it and, you know, be monks in the Egyptian desert. You know, we are going to live in this world and make livings and exist uh, in the social uh, space that we've created. Thank you. You made me feel better. <laughs> um, the last thing I want to talk about is the security aspect of reuse and mm-hmm. uh, of secondhand stuff. Um, this is a cybersecurity show, so let's touch on it uh, mm-hmm. directly. I know that there are a lot of people who don't want to donate or sell their stuff because they're worried that uh, you know their photos, their emails, all the stuff is stored on their their files are stored on a hard drive and. Uh, can they possibly trust uh, anyone to not be able to recover it, even if they wipe that hard drive? Well, I think it's it's really um, if you've wiped a hard drive, it's really hard to recover things. Um, one thing that I've seen again, you know, I think everybody's sort of terrified that their their hard drive will be shipped overseas, uh, and somebody overseas will then go and scan that hard drive and pick off their tax returns and social security number and everything else. And I can tell you, I've been in the shops where which buy used, say, uh, laptops from the United States and refurbish them. The last thing they have the time to do is go through those laptops looking for your tax returns, you know, looking for your credit card numbers. What they want to do is they want to fix those laptops, clean them up and get them on the shelves as quickly as possible. And they would just assume that those be wiped as well. The amount of energy and labor uh, that would go into extracting data from those, uh, you know, in Accra, Ghana or Lagos, Nigeria, it's just not worth it. Um, so that fear, I think, is is overblown. Um, you know, what happens in the United States? I mean, certainly if somebody's stealing your devices, I think that's far more of a concern. But again, you know, if you look at the value chain and how many devices are out there and what the incentives are for the companies that repair and refurbish, if you're going to these companies and selling your used stuff, the incentive is not there to be spending days, weeks looking for credit card numbers on your old hard drive. The incentive is to wipe that thing and get that thing back online onto eBay for sale or, you know, on shelves and reuse shops. So that's how I look at it. Uh, Adam Minter, the book is called Secondhand. Uh, Where can people find the book and where can they find you? Well, they can find the book pretty much anywhere they buy books online or in independent bookstores. Where do you prefer they buy it? Um, Where do I prefer they buy it? I'm always a big proponent of independent bookstores. They've been very supportive of my work, and so I try and support them. So go to your favorite indie, and and they're being very supportive in the month of November in particular of this book going into the holidays. So go to your favorite indie and see if you can buy it there. And uh, where can people find your work online? Uh, I write for Bloomberg Opinion uh, regularly, and that's where most of my work goes. I occasionally do some features uh, for Business Week, but primarily at Bloomberg. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 
Hey, welcome to Cyber Cipher. Uh, I have today with me uh, Emmanuel Myberg, who is our managing editor. Hello, I think this is my first cyber cameo. Yeah, and we're recording it in a new room. Kato, what's up? Yo, Kato welcome, is, welcome to G4. Yeah, Kato is a jack of all trades, uh, cyber editor, producer, Waypoint Radio personality, editor, <laughs> producer, blogger extraordinaire. So hello, wow, Kato. Thanks. Hi, how's it going? Good. I, I think of you as the like, um, you'll weigh in if, if if we say anything funny. Maybe you'll laugh. Yeah. Maybe you'll cry. Yeah. Yeah. Hard Great. to say. So uh, it's been a busy week. I feel like uh, I just got back from Thanksgiving and, and super busy. Uh, the first thing we should talk about is Verizon trying to uh, block people from preserving the Yahoo Groups uh, like archiving effort which is just, I don't know, Verizon has, and especially Yahoo, which I know has changed hands a few times, has a really bad track record of just shutting down really important internet history with little to no warning and also blocking people from saving things. So this happened with GeoCities, and now it's happening with Yahoo Groups, which is like their listserv community. Yeah, one of the more ancient uh, online uh, communities that uh, the Internet Archive is currently trying to save but during their efforts to save it, it seems that Verizon blocked them. Is that how? Yeah, I think so. How did they block them? Like, what? They just stopped their emails from mass downloading things, as, correct? As, as far as I understand, they addresses. flagged specific people who were trying to download all the data and prevented them from doing so. Yeah. And uh, as a result of the outrage on Motherboard, as well as on Twitter and elsewhere, Verizon has now backtracked and said that it will let people archive this stuff, right? Yeah, they're they're sort of letting them do that. They're giving them more time, but there's still a deadline. I think it's in the middle of January now as opposed to it was, it was supposed to be, I think, next week. Uh, so people have more time, but it's still going away. It's just a question of uh, whether uh, normal average users are going to be able to save this internet history. Uh, and I think it's interesting that the company just another case of them relying it's like if we want to keep stuff online if we want to keep a record of it we can't trust big companies it's, it's we can't are... trust big companies and also like the people at the internet archive are heroic and there's a bunch of sort of independent community people doing this as well but it's like you know putting it on a bunch of hard drives somewhere and mirroring it like who knows what the lifespan is on something like that like we think of the internet as forever, but it's actually probably way more uh, fragile than a physical building with books in it or something. Like we're talking about history that's only 20, 25 years old at this point. Uh, what happens in 100 years or 150 years? Yeah. Maybe. How long can we keep uh, relying on the on like Internet Archive to save all of Internet history? Yeah, especially as the internet gets way bigger. It's like... Uh, you know, they're they're always asking for donations and they, I think that they're doing like pretty well. They have this giant uh, like building in San Francisco, but I mean, like <laughs> they have like petabytes and petabytes of data. Like where is this, where is this all going to go? Yeah, eventually? I, I used to live by that building and I remember walking by after they had a fire in a Chinese restaurant next door. And I was <laughs> like, what if this building catches fire? Is that like the end of internet history? I think they have backups elsewhere, but yeah, it's it would be bad. It would be really bad if the internet archive went down. Uh, okay, next thing I want to talk about is um, this company DroneSense, which I don't know, did you work on this story at all? You read it. You yeah. read it so you know what's going on. What, uh, what happened here? Well... Uh, as we know, as we know from your reporting, uh, I 
I think it's like what what period of time would you say? This is ancient motherboard history as well. This is the very the very first articles I ever did for motherboard in 2013 were about domestic drones and police using drones and photographers using drones and like the integration of commercial drones into U.S. airspace. And this is like one of the only things I wrote about for I don't know a year, a year and a half, maybe a little longer. And there was a lot of controversy about whether police should be allowed to fly drones. Um, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia put like a moratorium on law enforcement uh, flights of drones for a few years. I don't know what the state of that now. I know the ACLU was like hugely involved in this, as was like other groups. And then we all just stopped caring and stopped talking about it. And now like every police department and fire like search and rescue place has drones that they use to surveil people they use for search and rescue they use uh during like natural disasters and, and stuff like this yeah so this is a classic motherboard story now where it's not the case that a police department just buys the drone and operates it there is all these services in between and one of these services that is called drone sense which kind of allows i think uh police departments and all these other agencies to guide their drones and map out the, you know, uh, how they fly. Uh, they just left that data online, totally exposed. So people were able to see whether, uh, just like the flight path of different police departments, the name of uh, operations, possible investigations, just... Yeah, it's really bad. And it shows, like, yet again, that uh, police departments and law enforcement in this country relies so much on third parties that are not connect like, they're not government agencies, and they don't always have the best data protection practices. And yeah, in this case, it was like hundreds of police departments, uh, you know, their flight records, their, uh, I think that there wasn't footage in this, but I know that drone sense does help like manage footage and, and stuff like this. So uh, yeah, it's not good. Um, and I think that this story shows not only like that this company was insecure, but also that uh, we don't really know very much about how drones are being used in this country by law enforcement. And it's much more widespread. Like this is just one company. It's not like every law enforcement agency uses drone sense, but some of them do. And it, it was like hundreds of them in, in this leak. It so made me... Good. Think of The Wire. Have you ever seen that show? Oh, yeah, I've seen it. So it's like they use all this surveillance equipment in the show and like they're very clever in how they like catch criminals and listen to them. And it's like imagine if you'd watch a season of that and then suddenly they're like, oh, somebody left an Amazon S3 bucket exposed online. <laughs> so the investigation is over and McNulty has to go home. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, The Wire. Uh I, the wire should have grappled with some of these issues. Yeah. It, was, it was before that time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, they used a lot of like tape recorders and like hidden cameras and stuff. Uh, but the storage of all this data is something that's really important and something that we talk a lot about. But I think in general, the public isn't like, where's all this footage going? I mean, you, this happens with body cameras. It happens with uh, you know drones it happens with surveillance like more typical surveillance cameras it probably happens with like wiretaps and stuff like this it's like how long do they keep that where does it go who can access it uh is it some random third party dealing with it and are they leaving it exposed on an amazon bucket somewhere the answer is like probably yes to all of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> we found just time after time after time uh next story um i want to talk about spacex copyright which 
feels like a personal attack on me uh, because another like this is a good uh, week for updates in like ancient motherboard history. So yeah. I think in 2015, maybe 2016, uh, when SpaceX, I mean, they still do uh, ISS, like International Space Station resupply missions, but they had just started ramping up doing those for NASA. And when NASA takes photos, they're in the public domain, meaning anyone can use them for any purpose. Uh, we get a lot of our imagery from NASA if we write about space, you know, those beautiful photos taken by the Hubble Space Telescope of like the different planets and black holes and not black holes because we only have one photo of those. It was a big deal when that came out. Uh, but like nebulas and galaxies and all this shit, it's really cool. And in the past, it's like NASA was flying the space shuttle to to resupply the ISS. And when it did that, all the photos that it was taking were public domain as well. So people could use them in news stories. They could make like calendars out of them. They could make posters out of them, what have you. But SpaceX is a private company. So all the photos that they take are their are SpaceX's property, even though like NASA and taxpayers are paying for these specific missions. Or at least it's like really confusing. Like no one was really sure. Like are these photos in the public domain or does SpaceX own them? So to sort of just like sidestep that question after we ran a few articles about this back in 2015, uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX were just like, we're going to make them all free for anyone to use. Like we're going to upload photos to our Flickr and we're going to give them what's known as a Creative Commons Zero license, which is in some ways more, even like more, um, you can do more things with it than even the public domain. And this is getting like deep into copyright nonsense, but they're very, like a private company cannot put something into the public domain technically. Like what happens is the copyright expires on things after like a long time, too long in many cases, like hundreds of years sometimes. Um, and anything that's made by the government goes into the public domain. And there's like a couple things that you can't do, but in general, you can do whatever you want with public domain things. I think you're not allowed to like use public domain images for like hate speech or something. Like if you put like a swastika on the NASA logo and then like sell it, I think you might get sued or something. Like it's un unclear. There's a couple like things that you can't do, but with uh, Creative Commons Zero, you can do anything you want with them. And it lasted this way for several years. And then mysteriously last week without telling anyone SpaceX put restrictions on photos that had previously put this CC0 license on and also the new photos it's been uploading. So now it has like still a Creative Commons license, but it's a much more restrictive one that prevents commercial use of these photos. And the issue is that copyright law is a disaster and no one is sure what commercial use means. Um, so it's like we are a commercial entity, but if we are putting uh, a photo of a SpaceX image like on top of an article about SpaceX, it's like that's sort of like an informing the public use of that photo. So it, it might be considered a non-commercial use, whereas like a nonprofit using a photo to fundraise or something could be considered a commercial use. So it's a big mess. And SpaceX doing this like retroactively is it like makes everything really confusing. Did they explain why they made this change? They didn't explain why, but they I mean, they said like, oh, well, don't worry about it. We did make this change, but we don't in 
intend to like change anything about how we enforce this copyright, which is true until it isn't, you know, like someone can say, hey, you can use this, but unless you have a like signed contract or unless you have explicit permission to use a photo for a certain purpose in 10 years or 15 years or in six months, like if Elon Musk is beefing with a news organization, he can send them a cease and desist. And that's like a really scary letter to get. And it can cost a lot of money. Yeah. And you have to wonder about the motivation because somebody has to make a decision to do it. And where is it coming from? Is it a lawyer? Is it a business person being like, hey, you know, these are valuable to us? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like the photos are valuable. Like they're beautiful photos. I mean, I don't know if anyone actually took them and tried to sell like a photo book of SpaceX launches. But I think that if someone had done that and like made a glossy coffee table book or something like people probably would have bought it. Um, there's a there's a good example of this happening with the torture report, uh, the uh, Congress's torture report, like some random person just collated that and sold it as a book and i've seen it in bookstores and yeah. it's like anyone can do that because it's taxpayer funded a spacex coffee table book sounds like something spacex would do yeah yeah so i mean i don't know what the motivation is here but like yeah could be could be that they're like worried about something like that happening or maybe someone is making a shitload of money it's like it's hard to say uh speaking of shitloads of money uh, the Coolest Cooler, which was the second highest funded Kickstarter of all time, it raised $13 million, uh, decided, or not decided, but announced earlier this week that people who have been waiting for their coolers for five years will not be getting their coolers, and uh, this saga is now over, and it's just a gigantic disaster. <laughs> this is really surprising to me because I was uh, covering games back when this first launched on Kickstarter and there was a lot of shenanigans with games on Kickstarter, but I don't really remember this controversy. Why Why did people give this cooler company $14 million? So I think it was during, it was like 2014 and I think it was during the like dawn of crowdfunding and the dawn of Kickstarter and it was one of the very first viral Kickstarters. So People like were like, oh, it's a cooler. Like literally it's a cooler that you put drinks in that has a speaker in it as well as like a battery pack to charge your phone as well as a margarita machine, <laughs> like a, a blender um, and I think a couple other things. And it's, oh, it has like a special slot to put your phone in and like all this other nonsense. And it's just like, it's a cooler that does everything. And they put it up for like 150 bucks which is, it turned out to be way cheaper than it actually cost to produce the cooler. Um, and there's been like tons of failed Kickstarters that had to do with hardware where people just underestimated the cost of making a physical good. Um, and I bet that happened in games too. I, I don't know as much, but I know that like Star Citizen was a massive game that failed or is still, I don't know, did Star Citizen fail? No, uh, no it's a huge it's, success. It's, yeah, it? They made a ton of money and people are still buying into it. Like, after the fact. It's wild. I don't understand why. But have they released anything besides, like... There's some demos. Okay. There's, like, parts of a game. Uh, you can go into a hangar and look at all the ships that you bought with real money. Uh, <laughs> so, it's something. It didn't technically fail yet. They're still working on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the Kickstarters that have been successful are, like... Or the ones that are successful in terms of people not being really mad because they never got the thing that they paid for are, like... 
board games and I mean some of those are a disaster too but it's like <laughs> board games and uh, companies that have a proven track record of making something just like wanting to make another thing that like have a supply chain and you know know how to make a product whereas this is just like a random dude who was like I want to make a cooler that has a blender in it yeah and- there also <laughs> used to be different rules on Kickstarter like I remember at some point they introduced People were posting so much bullshit about gadgets that were impossible to make, basically. And they were like, you can't have a Kickstarter for a product if all you have is a concept yeah. illustration. I remember the one that changed this. Uh, I think that changed this was the Laser Razor. Do you remember this? It was no. called Scarp. And it was literally <laughs> like a razor that you used to shave your face. But instead of a blade, it had a it's laser. laser. <laughs> yeah. And it raised like hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not over a million dollars. And wow. uh and like kicks, all they had was a laser pointer strapped to a, a razor <laughs> yeah. and to show. And Kickstarter was like, yeah, you can't do this. Yeah. So they kicked them off. And then it raised like millions of dollars on Indiegogo. And uh, it never came out as far as I know. Yeah. Like, yeah. This cooler, though, it exists. I'm looking at a picture of it. It's like a physical object. Yeah. So they did. So I think like 50 or 60,000 people bought this cooler. And I wrote about it back in 2016 because people were mad then. It had only been a year, and people were really mad because they hadn't gotten it yet. And uh, the the company made, like, maybe 5,000 of them and sent them to 5,000 people and then ran out of money. So they raised $13 million, and they ran out of money. And then they went to the backers and were like, can you give us a hundred more dollars because we're out of money and we promise we'll make, we'll, we promise we'll send it to you by July 4th of this year. So July 4th of 2016. And then at the same time, they were selling these coolers on Amazon. Like anyone could just go buy one on Amazon and get it like the next day, but it was $400. So they were like, we're making profit on these coolers at $400, but we, we don't have the like scale to make it at the $150 price point. So people were really mad because they're like, we know you're making the coolers, but you're not sending them to us. And now you're asking us for more money. And it was just like a huge, huge disaster. And uh, now four years later, here we are and no one else is getting their coolers. So what's the final nail in the coffin? Like, how? why is this now over? You, you This is, I think, you read the letter, right? Or I like read the letter, yeah. It. Yeah, so it's so funny. You got, you got to say. I mean, it seems to me like they're blaming the Trump administration and its trade war with China for material costs or yeah so they're saying that like they're unable to import the coolers from China because Trump's trade war has made it impossible to do so at a at a cost a price point that makes sense and they're out of money and they can't buy like the components needed like Mm -hmm. the blender uh like apparatus or what have you and so in announcing to everyone, there's still 20,000 or 30,000 people waiting for their coolers who have been waiting for five years. Could you imagine like buying a cooler and being like, I'm going to wait five <laughs> years for this? Um, so they've been waiting five years and they get this really long email and the entire email is like a political screed against the Trump administration. And it's like, buddy, like <laughs> you can be against the trade war. Like I think the trade war is probably a bad thing. I don't know the ins and outs of it really. But uh, you had four years before this trade war to make a, a like plastic box and sell it to people. Listen, Jason, I'm not going to be able to file today because the, tra- the, the, trade, the war. trade war is really slowing down. Yeah. My ability to- well, the, the USMCA 
or the U.S. USMC. I forget the no initial. the USM the U.S. Mexico Canada trade agreement was uh, like ratified or a deal was announced earlier this week and like it, replacing it with NAFTA. It's really going to affect the blog economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we're not going to be able to. I'm not yeah. going to be able to deliver these goods. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So that was a good saga, and it's now mercifully over. And everyone who's waiting for their uh, cooler gets twenty dollars. In the end, which I love. <laughs> They're going to mail them a $20 bill. Uh, okay, last story. I know we've been rambling for a while, but uh, Ohio University put out a press release late, late last month in which one of its uh, professor emeritus, emeritus uh, just like an old guy who still is affiliated with the university, uh, released some research in which he said that, quote, there was and is life on Mars, uh, and it's an entomologist, and he says that there are both reptiles and insects living on Mars actively, and his evidence for this are photos taken by the Curiosity rover, and the the art is like that photo with like MS Paint, like red line <laughs> circles, conspiracy theory type things, like thorax, head, yeah, like, yeah. and it's just incredible. Red, red marker, uh on a, on, a, on a photo from from NASA, it's basically yeah. the evidence. And like, so this went, uh, I guess, mildly viral. Like the week of Thanksgiving, I was on vacation, so we're just now getting to it. But it's too good to pass up. And Ohio University, which is a public university, pulled the press release. Like they put out a press release in which they basically said aliens are real, and then they pulled the press release, and they won't say why. <laughs> like they're not stepping back from the. They're not like saying, "Oh, this isn't true." They're saying the professor who released this doesn't wish to engage with the media, so we deleted the press release. And I like asked mm. them, I was like, so do you like believe that there's aliens on Mars or like like what's happening here? And like they just didn't respond. Do you remember the face on Mars? I vaguely. There's been a few stories like this. It was like yeah. a satellite picture of the surface of Mars and it was something um on the terrain that just with the shadows looked like a face. Mm -hmm. This would be like a university releasing a statement being like that looks like a face so there's like a giant face on mars yeah that <laughs> and then and then just being like uh yeah never mind not, not even never mind but like oh we took this down but uh we just took it down yeah i, rem I remember this coming we use this uh everybody uses this service called eureka alert which just aggregates all the press releases from all the universities and we look at that every day and we often see research where we're like oh this seems interesting but there's not enough there for us to kind of spread it to the public. And I remember this coming across and be like, this is really wild. Like, why would you, why is a university putting out this statement? There's zero evidence. Yeah, yeah. It's literally like, so I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the university and I'm anxiously awaiting to get the results back in which I asked for like the underlying research that informed this press release and also like why did they take it down since they're not saying publicly why they took it down and i just cannot wait to get it back uh so tune back in either a couple weeks from now or a couple years from now depending <laughs> on how long this foia takes um yeah you know the government just got involved they have to yeah. keep it hush hush exactly yeah it's the whole thing is just redacted if the whole yeah. thing is redacted i'm gonna lose my shit <laughs> it's like, Oh what God. are they hiding? <laughs> that's why they took down the press release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so that's uh, Cyber Cypher. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you, Kato. You can find these stories and more at motherboard.vice.com. And uh, Ben will be back next week.
This week's episode was produced and edited by Ricardo Contreras. I'm Jason Kepler, and Ben will thankfully be back next week. In the meantime, we'd really appreciate it if you told your friends about the show, share it on your social media, or otherwise help us get the word out. In the meantime, you can find us at motherboard.vice.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.